3: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, and welcome to show number 298. My name is Seth Williams, and I have a story for you. Let me first say that I'm truly happy that you've joined us, and excited with the treat we have to share with you tonight. I'm sure that it will both horrify and disturb you during your commute, or while you do your dishes, or your digging of a large hole in the backyard late at night in the dark. Anyway, this week we have not only Hal Bodner's Stoker Award-nominated story Hot Tub, but also a narrator with a voice that I, as an insatiable devourer of fiction podcasts, will more than likely never forget, Graham Dunlop. More about these two gentlemen in a moment. Before you have your treat, though, I have a trick for you. And yes, I know, that's usually trick or treat, not trick for treat. Humor me. If you are currently not being chased by zombies, seduced by a vampire, or more mundanely driving a car, please, take a moment to leave a glowing, or in our case, a frightening review on iTunes, or the podcatcher you choose. This is how we know that we scare, frighten, or even revolt you, and quite honestly, we want to disturb as many people as possible. So let's get started. Hal Bodner is a multiple Bram Stoker Award nominee, known for his best-selling gay vampire novel *Bite Club and the Lupine sequel... The Trouble with Harry. He tells people he was born in East Philadelphia because so few people know where Cherry Hill, New Jersey, is located. The first person he ever saw was the doctor who delivered him, C. Everett Coop, the future U.S. Surgeon General. Thus, from birth, Hal was ironically destined to become a heavy smoker, a habit he greatly misses. He moved to West Hollywood in the 1980s and has rarely left the city limits since, in fact, he is so wayho centric that he cannot find his way around Beverly Hills, the next town over. In a burst of optimism, he bought a six-bedroom mansion in Highland Park, a supposedly up-and-coming area of East Los Angeles. After three years of watching the street gangs doing drug deals in his backyard, he fled back to Weho. During his sojourn in East L.A., he was protected from harm because of his habit of chasing his escaped pet, Peacock, down Figueroa Boulevard at night, dressed in his fluffy bathrobe and fuzzy Cthulhu slippers, while yelling, Apollo, Apollo, come back! None of the gang members would shoot him. They were laughing too hard. His various professions have included stints as an entertainment lawyer, a scheduler for a 976 sex telephone line, a theater reviewer, and the personal assistant to a television star. For several years he owned Heavy Petting, a pet boutique where movie stars bought gold-plated water dishes and designer wardrobes for the Chihuahuas and Pomeranians. In the erotic paranormal romance genre, which he refers to as supernatural smut, he is best known for having written In Flesh and Stone and For Love of the Dead. His comic gay superhero trilogy will hopefully debut shortly with Fabulous in Tights to be followed by A Study in Spandex. With Brown and Brownie, the Case of the Purloined Prince, the first novel in a trilogy featuring a gay detective and his sidekick, the madam of an escort agency. Hal is busily turning classic noir fiction upside down and tinting it with a healthy splash of lavender. Hal married a man roughly half his age who had no idea that Liza Manelli and Judy Garland were related. In consequence, he has discovered that the use of hair dye is rarely an adequate substitute for Viagra, With that being said, I present to you, Hot Tub.
0: Selling a little or a lot?
4: The instant I saw the pool boy I knew he had to die. He was far too beautiful to live and my entire body, such as it was, tingled with anticipation. He had exactly the kind of physique I'd best like to play with. A smooth expanse of broad hard chest interrupted only by a slash of cleavage and a few tiny wisps of hair around each nipple trunk-like thighs rippling like anacondas when he walked, and biceps which seemed to strain against their covering of spice-brown skin whenever he moved his arms. When he bent to place Jason's drink on the table, the sculpted plates of his stomach slid into each other like armour that had been oiled. Even the most anaesthetic cretin of a casting director would have been able to tell that it was all natural, developed from actual labour and outdoor exercise. This youth was leagues away from the artificial steroid-pumped gym rats to which Jason was partial. Most Los Angelinos, at least those in Jason's social set, lump anyone with brown skin into the category of Mexican. I know better. Some years back, I spent a bit of time in Mexico. I found the people there to be dull and lifeless, earthy and pale shadows of their ancestors, not to my taste at all. Back in the day, the people of Mexico were a bloodthirsty lot, sometimes sacrificing thousands of captured enemies in a single day until the stairways of their temples were so drenched in blood that the scarlet stains can still be seen today. Then, of course, the Spanish invaded and everything went to hell. Isn't that just like the Europeans, always mucking about with perfection until they ruin it utterly? Anyway, the sight of this tanned and athletic young man had stirred some of my cherished memories of the new world natives. I would wager he had quite a bit of the jungles of Peru in his blood. I adored the original Peruvians, a plucky race. They fought to the death, and if pestilence hadn't wiped them out, they might even have won. I could easily picture the pool boy on a ball court, stripped naked but for a loincloth, eyes the colour of chocolate mixed with cayenne, sparkling with laughter as he kicked, a decapitated blonde-haired Spanish head the length of the field. "'Better yet, I envisioned him standing framed against an impossibly blue sky, "'with scarlet blood staining his chalk-white teeth "'and dripping onto the gold and jewelled plates covering his rippled chest, "'the strong muscles of his back straining in relief as he chewed, "'the tough, raw heart-muscle of his enemies. "'Oh, yes, I've always had quite the fondness for Peruvian guys.' Jason, of course, was almost completely oblivious.' More accurately, he was oblivious to any needs but his own. Until he noticed the poor boy, he'd been sprawled out poolside, face down on his chaise, floating in a mildly alcoholic haze from the combination of two mojitos and the ninety-plus degree heat, half arousing himself by a combination of mental fantasy, the smell of musk from his own armpits, and the pressure of the beach-towel-covered chair on his dick. Don't get me wrong, Jason's an extremely attractive man. When he was 22, it was enough. But he's one of those 10% of the lowest intelligence who think they're in the top 1%. I'm lucky you can read. When I first started mentoring him, he was dyslexic, though no one had any idea of what that was at the time. The studio had to hire a UCLA intern to teach his lines to him. The college boy doubled as a fluffer and would suck Jason off every time he was about to go on camera, which, I suppose, accounts for the glassy-eyed expression that became one of Jason's trademarks. The critics call it an otherworldly, ethereal quality of mysticism and romance. Being fairly well acquainted with various otherworldly qualities myself, I fail to see how Daily Variety managed to confuse them with post-orgasmic satiation. Jason, though, thinks he has taste and the little bastard likes to test his boundaries and push me. Usually, I give him enough rope to hang himself, and, when he comes crying back to me with a gift or two, I relent with nothing worse than a mild rebuke or a bubbling belch. Every so often Jason goes too far, and reluctantly I have to teach him a lesson. Most of the time, a hit to his portfolio or a few months of offers drying up is enough to bring him into the line. A few times he was out of control enough so that the punishment needed to be more severe. And like the plump nipples of the pool boy, both of Jason's had to be surgically reconstructed so he could go bare-chested when he starred in action pictures. The damaged testicle wasn't a problem, as if audiences were lucky, it was probably never going to be on camera anyway. Frankly, keeping Jason in Jaguars and cocaine is sometimes almost more hassle than it's worth. The guy's his own worst enemy. While he wouldn't dare thwart me in most things, in other areas he's as stubborn as an approaching 50 actress who is convinced she can still play 25. He'll have a single blockbuster hit and it'll go right to his head. It takes only a single cover story in People magazine to convince him that he actually has talent and he can do serious roles. We'll argue back and forth, and invariably he'll come up with a few wretched pieces of tripe that he considers serious drama, worthy of his dubious skills. Inevitably, they're dismal flops, especially if he insists on directing. And by the Tuesday after opening weekend, he's all humble and contrite, whining that he practically has to beg to be allowed back into the studio commissary, or that none of his A-list buddies will play tennis with him at the club. Ugh. That's not to say Jason's not clever. Indeed, he can be a manipulative son of a bitch. He knows exactly which of my buttons to push to wheel himself back into my good graces. Some of the gifts he'd brought me over the years have been pretty spectacular. But as Jason gets older and fears he's losing his youth and his audience appeal, as his bankability declines with each seesaw of a major hit followed by a dismal flop or two, Every parting of the ways between us comes more violent and of longer duration. He simply cannot come to terms with the fact that I know best, and that he is, for want of a better analogy, not much more than attractive meat. You may wonder why I haven't just dumped him. Frankly, I wonder that myself sometimes. Part of the reason is that Jason is one of those rare individuals who are so self-centred, so absorbed with their own needs and immediate gratifications, so egoistic and focused on whatever they desire at the moment, that they have no real soul. It's pointless even to damn them. They wouldn't understand why they'd been damned, nor even what damnation was all about. It's no fun poking sticks at something that can't feel the pain. Besides, Jason came along at a fortuitous time for me, and I've been the force behind too many coincidences to imagine that they occur naturally without some outside help. Jason was barely 20 when I met him. Though we were both enthralled with the movie business, our obsessions were subtly different. Jason was bowled over with the idea of power and money, glamour and fame, unrestricted sex and drugs all in the name of art. He wanted to be desired and worshipped and adored. As for me, well, though I've never been one to scoff at or turn down some decent quality adoration and worship, it was something particular to Hollywood that most attracted me. The movie business is certainly not the only industry to earn a reputation, as a cesspool of corruption, greed, and selfishness. Hell, almost any of the 19th and early 20th century manufacturing industries are worse, and very often you have the deaths of thousands of slave laborers to sweeten the pot. But Hollywood is unique in that it thrives on the corruption of the closest held and most cherished of people's dreams. It's easy to kill a man but to slowly chip away at his deepest dreams, thwarting them in infinitesimally excruciating increments until he succumbs to despair. That is a delicious exploitation of talent. Even better, in this town, people are generally far too full of themselves to consider committing suicide to banish their crushed dreams forever. No, in Hollywood they take service jobs, or become non-pros, or get involved in support industries trying to convince themselves, and anyone who will listen, that they really have made it in some minor way. Yet all the time, their failures quietly and secretly eat at their souls. They are the sources of their own agony. (laughs) Delicious. Back to my first encounter with Jason. Though I clearly remember the circumstances of my humiliation, I have no intention of sharing them. I'll say only that, no matter how big you may think your dick is, there is always someone with a bigger dick who you'll want to avoid, and we'll just leave it at that. Things could have been worse, I suppose. Two thousand years ago, I might have found myself trapped in a dented brass lighting fixture and tossed into the desert. For a while it was all the rage. Anyone who was anyone had an old oil lamp on display to be proudly shown off to honoured guests accompanied by suitably fearful stories about the terrible and powerful being trapped within it. Almost all of them were empty, of course, but if a visitor was foolish enough to point out to the owner that he'd purchased a fake, he was likely to have his nose slit or his right hand cut off. "'In more modern times, fate's sense of humour seems to have grown even more perverse. "'I know three of my brethren who were bound into musical instruments. "'In one case it was a tuba played weekends in a mariachi band. "'I heard of another who was trapped in a bustia owned by a stripper "'who was long past her prime but who still insisted on wearing the thing to perform.' And there's a particularly gruesome and degrading urban legend amongst my kind, which involves a shovel used by the caretakers at the Milwaukee Zoo. In comparison, being confined to a nine-foot-wide circle of steaming water wasn't too terrible. But it was embarrassing. A hot tub. In Los Angeles a redwood hot tub no less there were times i wanted to scream from the trite cliché of the thing but all i could do was bubble with humiliation at least i was located in a low-rent apartment building in the heart of hollywood Some of the alternatives would have been cringe-inducing. I consider myself damned lucky that I wasn't inhabiting one of those ubiquitous fat farms calling themselves luxury spas where day in and day out I'd be subjected to flabby-fleshed matrons and portly businessmen just begging for a heart attack. (laughs) Worse, I could have found myself in the courtyard of one of those weird ashrams out in Malibu where the sanctimonious, self-conscious spirituality of all those true believers and whack jobs who consider themselves to be spiritually advanced would have quickly driven me insane. Most of the tenants were youngish types, and I am, as is already obvious, a sucker for youth and beauty, especially if it's male. The endless progression of hopeful actors, eager musicians and writers... Wannabe directors and producers and other youngsters with pie-in-the-sky fantasies were at least mildly entertaining, if monotonous and predictable, after the first few years. Fortunately, there were enough bruised egos, crushed hopes and missed opportunities to sustain me, but they were mere appetisers, preventing starvation but never satiating. I wanted—I lusted for a meal— and the temptation was excruciating. Some of the youths who jumped into my hot tub were exquisitely beautiful, and my incorporeal jaws virtually ached at the thoughts of what I wanted to do to them. Unfortunately, there are rather rigid rules for these sorts of situations, and old-fashioned traditionalist that I am, I was constrained to abide by them. Jason, when he came along, was a less than perfect solution, but at least he was a solution. Other than his extreme beauty, and marked lack of anything remotely resembling talent, intelligence, or ability, there wasn't much to distinguish him from the hundreds of other young hopals I'd shared the water with over the years. Not at first. But as he continued to slip into the tub, night after night, to loll in the heated bubbles— I began to sense something marvellous about him. A pervasive amorality and a total lack of even the simplest human emotions as they applied to other people. An almost perfect sociopath. In my hot tub. I was blessed. Truly I was. Then something strange and wonderful began to happen. Slowly, Jason began to sense my presence sharing the jetting water with him. It was terribly frustrating. He knew I was there, I knew he knew it, and there was nothing I could do about it to open the door of communication. The entire responsibility fell on Jason, and as I'm sure I've already mentioned, Jason is more than a few opinion cards short of an audience survey. Even knowing that the powers that be intentionally arranged these bindings to inanimate objects to produce exactly the kind of frustration I was experiencing didn't make me feel any better. I have to give Jason some credit. While most people might have thought themselves crazy imagining a present in a hot tub, Jason never once doubted himself. His ego is that strong, and his faith in his own abilities is that misguided. He often spoke aloud to me, and when that didn't work, he spent a ridiculous few hours trying to make contact with me by means of a second-hand Ouija board he found at a swap meet. That damned Ouija board is still a bone of contention between us. Every so often he'll drag it out and try to use it to force me to do something, which he knows I have no damned intention of doing. I've told him a hundred times that the thing only works on the dead, and I am emphatically not some stupid specter who doesn't know enough to go into the light. But Jason has some preconceived notions that he's gotten so far into his thick skull that you'd need a sledgehammer to get them out. Believe me when I say that the sledgehammer is sometimes a mighty tempting option. Six, seven months went by. I did what I could for the kid, which admittedly wasn't much. I was able to influence a couple of auditions that might have gone in his favour anyway, as the casting folks were looking mostly for a face, and they didn't need anyone to actually try to act. A few times I was able to augment the desire that an older, wealthier gent had to run his hands over Jason's nubile, young, naked body. That was by far the easiest, as I've always had a talent for lust. However, there were times when Jason could be even more moronic than my low expectations of him. Three times when I set him up with Johns so he could pay his rent, the idiot took checks. (sighs) Even so, with great and exhausting effort, I was able to keep a roof over his head. Much as I was already starting to dislike him, he was my only hope and I did not want him hightailing it back to Kansas or whatever godforsaken place he was originally from. The day he brought the underwear model home was the turning point. The boy was absolutely gorgeous, a bit too slender to be my ideal, but with such exquisite bone structure and an almost androgynous quality to his musculature that he would have taken even my breath away had I been in a state where breathing was possible. Jason fucked him on the lounge chairs. He fucked him on the deck surrounding the pool. He fucked him while leaning against a tree in one of the ornamental planters. He fucked him standing, sitting, laying down, and in some improbably gymnastic positions that would have put any human being over thirty into instant traction. And once he was finally all fucked out, to kill the lily, so to speak, he forced the guy to blow him in the hot tub. I'd shared my water with many other guys, and even girls who'd had sex in the tub, and nothing had happened. In this one instance, thank goodness, Jason's fixation on his own immediate needs paid off. It certainly didn't hurt that both he and the model were also already coked halfway to the tits before they got into the tub, To this day I'm amazed his dick wasn't bitten off while he was holding the model's head under the water. Afterwards he told me that he just assumed all the thrashing and digging of nails into the backs of his thighs was evidence of passion. It never occurred to him that it might be part and parcel of suffocation or drowning. His main concern about the tragedy, he later complained, was... That he hadn't had a chance to shoot another load as he so graphically termed it before the model expired i sensed the instant the youth died i was still very very weak even so i summoned the strength to croak get out and i accompanied it with a tremendous eruption of sulfurous bubbles Even if he didn't understand my command, the stench was enough to send Jason scampering out of the tub. He stood on the deck, naked and dripping, his jaw hanging open like the classic drooling idiot, watching me as I feasted. Oh my, but underwear guy was delicious! When I'd finished, a tremendous loginess came over me. Lazily I settled onto the bottom of the tub, pausing only to send out a mental message tomorrow night before I drifted away into what passed for a contented sleep for those of my kind. Wouldn't you know it, the ignoramus showed up with roadkill. I don't know whether it was a cat or an opossum or a rat or someone's prized Pomeranian for that matter, Whatever it was, it was bloody and disgusting and as insulting as hell. There Jason was, with the furry corpse in his hands, kneeling and holding it up to the hot tub, as if it was an offering of the finest frankincense or the choicest morsels of an unbaptized infant's flesh. "'You've got to be kidding,' I told him. I was still languid from my meal, but I was strong enough to form some semblance of a body from the water.' "'Even better, the range of my influence had finally expanded "'so that I could more easily affect things past the borders of the apartment-building courtyard "'without getting a debilitating headache. "'It's an offering,' he informed me with naive gravity. "'I sighed. "'I'm pretty sure he missed the way I looked down my nose with disdain, "'but since I was still incapable of manifesting as much more than a nebulous blob of percolating water—' I wasn't offended. The dubious offering, however, was another matter. Dude, I began. He started probably not expecting me to sound like a Malibu surfer. I probably could have led with the whole bow down before your new master routine, but I was feeling benevolent, possibly because I'd found a couple of leftover shreds of underwear model that had been accidentally parboiled to exquisite tenderness. Dude, your life is about to change. Jason's desires were boringly predictable. Like so many others, he wanted to be a movie star. Not merely an actor, he was quite explicit about that. He wanted to be a star. I assured him that his goals were easily within the realm of my abilities, and I instructed him on what he'd have to do in order to hold up his side of the deal. To his credit, he never once balked. I let him know in no uncertain terms that our initial objective was to secure his future, and, not incidentally, mine. My first order of business was to build up my strength. Jason obliged with two street hustlers. He then found a very attractive Filipino coke dealer, and we used the stash to get hold of a full-release masseur and a Salvadoran boy who advertised naked maid services. For my part, the auditions started coming fast and furious. Our biggest challenge in those early days was that I hadn't developed the finesse I have now. I could extend enough influence to get him the jobs, but I wasn't always able to tell in advance specifically what the jobs were for. I needed him to hire an agent, or at the very least, a manager. Jason balked and refused. According to him, he needed no one's advice on his career but his own. Evidently he'd seen Valley of the Dolls or some similar crap one too many times and he thought that if he kept referring to agents as blood-sucking leeches it would make him sound more like a knowledgeable Hollywood insider. Try as I might to talk him around, Mr. Wizard proclaimed that agents and managers had no purpose other than to suck the cream off of the talents of others, though in truth Jason phrased it in much more graphic and far-earthier words. Notwithstanding that he was fundamentally right, he still needed the help and the disagreement burgeoned into our first conflict. It was risky for me, I won't deny that, but I took the chance. I made sure Jason's phone stopped ringing and the auditions dried up. His headshots found their way into the wrong folders... His business cards slipped into the back of the drawer or were accidentally brushed off into the garbage. It took almost a month for his predicament to register with him, and a few weeks longer before the probable reasons for it dawned over the barren field that is Jason's brain during that time, I grew famished. It's easy to resign yourself to starvation, but it's hellish to have to return to abstinence after a series of feasts. Eventually, my little Einstein capitulated. He brought me a tight-bodied little African-American personal trainer. He made a surprisingly refreshing change from all of those beach boy types Jason was partial to. Even better, there was no lingering aftertaste of suntan oil. We engaged an ancient transplanted New Yorker named Florence, who was a walking stereotype, complete with fake diamond-rimmed glasses dangling around her neck on a silver chain, bluish hair piled high on her head into a tight bun, far too much makeup applied, as if with a trowel, a raucous voice like a hippopotamus in heat, and sturdy, sensible shoes. Florence had no idea I existed. She experienced only an overwhelming drive to make as much money for Jason as she could in the shortest possible time, which, given the kind of woman she was, fell right in line with what she probably would have done even without my trying to influence her. Jason, still hesitant and abashed from the dry period I'd subjected him to, kept fairly quiet when I forced him to husband almost every penny, It took almost a year, but finally I was ready. Buy this building, I ordered him. At first he bristled to argue. Why spend the hundreds of thousands of dollars he's earned on what was, after all, a pretty run-down apartment building in Hollywood? With great patience, I explained my predicament and how fragile our arrangement was should some developer decide to tear the place down as my words penetrated the fog, I think it may have been the first expression of fear I'd ever seen him exhibit. I don't know how he convinced Florence to go along with the plan. I only assume I'd provided some strong motivation. There were snags. There always are when it comes to real estate in Los Angeles. It's an illusory industry. No one-bedroom, 900-square-foot, plywood death-trap of a house is truly worth two and a half million dollars for example but in la we fight to the death to preserve our illusions we spend far more time protecting our fantasies than we do facing our realities it's simply the way we are in this case the snags were a muscular hairy-chested thirty-some year old israeli gentleman and velvet-skinned armenian twin brothers with the most incredible asses i'd seen in years they formed the investment consortium that owned the building. (laughs) Fortunately, I have always been partial to Middle Eastern food. Once we owned the place, evicting the tenants would have drawn too much attention. Instead, we let it become abandoned through attrition, and I will confess, a single night of overindulgence in a trio of roommates from the second floor wannabe rock musicians with tattoos covering the whipcord muscles of their torsos and backs. I was sorely tempted by one of the investigating officers who came asking questions after the band vanished, a handsome, blonde-haired stud. But I decided to err on the side of discretion and dignity, and I let the cop go unscathed. I fancy myself a gourmet, not a gourmet. Once the building was secure, I didn't care that Jason moved out and into his first house up in the hills. My immediate safety was assured, and I was content with the arrangement. But then, Jason started getting a little too big for his britches, as the old expression goes. I honestly think that it was a case of monkey see, monkey do, or in Jason's case, moron see, moron do. Actors are strange beasts blessed in spite of themselves. If you consider how far some of them get in life without having enough brains to fit into a demi-tasse, can you imagine what an intelligent one could pull off? He could rule the world so long as there were no mirrors to preen in and distract him, and so long as there was some poor schnook behind the scenes to write down everything he was supposed to say in public and put it on a teleprompter for him. The first transgression that I knew about was a hitchhiker, a tawny-haired hopeful from somewhere down south. At the time, Jason had only just begun to find himself, so the result was bloody, but nonetheless effective, showing not a scintilla of the finesse that my unwanted protégé would develop over the next few years. I'm not eating that! But, But what do I do with the body? Jason's voice, while tailor-made for the bold and witty deep-voiced quips of the action heroes he so often plays, takes on an indescribably irritating quality when he whines or whimpers. It's a harsh, high-pitched tone that combines nails and a chalkboard with hints of alley cats being roasted alive. While some of my kind might find that sort of thing pleasant, my personal tastes are more refined. I shrugged as if I didn't care. I didn't realise quite yet that he'd developed dark desires of his own. I thought he'd simply been unable to coax the kid into the abandoned apartment building and had assumed, insultingly, that dead was as much to my taste as fresh. I'm not your personal disposal, Jason, I told him. If you want to make an offering or to bring me a gift, if you want to thank me and guarantee that my benevolence still flows in your direction, make it a proper one. I sneered deliberately, enjoying the look of misery on his handsome face. "'Otherwise don't waste my time.' "'But—' he stammered, still unable to understand why I was rejecting the hitchhiker. "'Keep it up, kiddo. Keep working my nerves, "'and you'll be appearing in toilet paper commercials for scale.' "'I knew it,' he retorted nastily. I knew I never should have taken the trouble to bring anything to you. I should have just dumped him in the desert with the others. I froze as the import of his words registered. The others? I asked with ominous calm, which of course he completely missed noticing. What others? Whereupon, with blithe abandon he began to relate the indescribable stupidity of what he'd been doing for the past several months. By the time he was done rehashing every tiny detail of each of the six murders, as if I should be relishing each word, I was livid.
1: "'Are
4: you insane?' I blurted out, once he'd finished and was looking at me smugly for approval. There's no need to be huffy, he said, with the arrogance that only a young actor whose last film grossed close to a hundred million can muster. Besides, you can do it. What makes you better than me? That was when I ripped his nipples off and ate them. I apologised later, of course. Not for attacking him. He deserved that. But for risking his career by doing something that might show up on camera. Oh, he avoided me for a few months after that, not because he was afraid of me doing more damage, but rather because he was going to teach me a lesson. I arranged for his next job offer to be on Dancing with the Stars, and it was almost magical to see how quickly I found him truculently standing on the redwood deck above me, looking down into the steaming water, chin set, and prepared for a knock-down, drag-out rumpus. (laughs) (sighs) To be honest, he made some compelling arguments in his favour But I was adamant I'd groomed him to be a star, not a serial killer Even though there was some of the latter inherent in the former We needed to keep his priorities straight We argued for hours And it was an argument we'd have over and over again For the next few years Each time, I'd assume I'd won, and things would settle down for a while. Then Jason would show up bearing the tortured body of an extremely handsome Vietnamese waiter from Alhambra, or a youth from the Occidental College male gymnastic team, or a young member of a construction crew who'd been working on paving potholes on the 405 freeway, and within minutes we'd be screaming at each other and hurling accusations and imprecations once again. Physical punishment wasn't terribly persuasive. I learned that when, only a scant six weeks after I'd lost my temper and crushed his right ball, Jason brought me the body of a Ralph's stock boy that he had slowly and patiently burned alive with heated barbecue skewers. It began to dawn on me that Maybe I was not as infallible as I'd thought. I realized that choosing Jason may not have been the best decision I'd ever made. Perhaps the compulsions he was claiming might actually be valid. Still, I was stuck with him, and after all, what healthy codependent relationship doesn't have a (laughs) troubling wrinkle or two? I still got on his case when he transgressed, and I urged and cautioned him to be careful. I didn't much care if he were caught, but as for me, I found myself echoing Vivian Lee and vowing to never go hungry again. I even swallowed my pride and helped him dispose of the evidence every so often, though too much dead gives me the functional equivalent of indigestion. Fortunately, I'm much less gassy if I take the time to boil them until tender a few times jason insisted on demonstrating his technique for me i feigned boredom but between you and me i was actually fascinated with how quickly he progressed and how skilled he became at inflicting pain and terror with his tortures There was one blonde boy, if memory serves, it was another personal trainer, who Jason managed to keep screaming into a gag fairly constantly for almost an entire weekend, with no one in the abandoned courtyard but me and the occasional pigeon to witness. He slipped the young man into the hot tub scant seconds before he died and... In spite of myself, I had to admit it was one of the most delicious meals I've had in recent memory. Oddly, I don't think Jason did it either to try and impress me or to make a legitimate offering. I think he did it because he was a little lonely. As his fame grew, as his extracurricular perversions became more compelling, as his innate selfishness grew more pronounced, I think he discovered that he has difficulty relating to people. In a weird way, I think I may be his only friend. I find an odd solace in these thoughts. I'm not the friend-making type. If I did have a friend, I think I'd want him to be capable of carrying on a conversation with subject matter of more depth than box office grocers, potential projects in development, and what the Kardashians were up to. But, for a time, things between us were... nice, and the mental and emotional bonds between us grew stronger. Soon, while I could not force myself inside of his mind, I could often see things as if I were gazing out of Jason's eyes and hear those of his thoughts that he wanted me to hear. But then the little shit started pushing me again, testing his boundaries, making the mistake of thinking that merely because I'm trapped in this damned redwood cell, I can't reach out and hurt or even destroy if I need to. He'd see someone, a beautiful young man, and he'd know that I desired him. Sometimes he'd do the wise thing and bring him to me, but there were other times when he was convinced a director was favouring a leading lady, or when a critical review of one of his dubious performances was less than stellar, or when there were too many rotten tomatoes, or when he was not immediately seated at a prime table at a trendy restaurant. At those times he lashed out, and the one he lashed out at was me. He sold the Hollywood Hills house in favor of a Bel Air mansion with a soundproofed basement. There, in what used to be a recording studio, he got a perverse enjoyment out of sensing me raging and cursing at him, imprisoned several miles away in my Hollywood hot tub, while he slowly tortured some magnificent specimen of manhood to death. Other times, he'd bring them into Hollywood, right into the courtyard, where he'd play with them for hours or even days until they expired. Then and only then would he deign to gift me with the cold dead meat, unsatisfying but vital to my continued comfort. The son of a bitch got off on teasing me, tempting me, driving me to the brink of madness, knowing that the worst I would do to him was something financial. We both knew that as much as I lusted to do so, For me to hurt him physically to the degree he deserved would only be cutting off my own figurative nose despite my face. We'd become symbiotic, each a parasite of the other, unable to exist without what the other half provided. Jason became a master at pushing just far enough. Then just when I was on the verge of abandoning all restraint and doing something drastic like ripping out his liver— He would relent, and feigning sweetness and light, he'd slide a bound, fully conscious, and indescribably yummy boy into the water. I've tolerated it for a very long time, but the end of my torment is nearing. There's a boy, you see. He's young, perhaps seventeen, a runaway, I think. He broke into the building a few months ago— and has made a little nest for himself in one of the old apartment units. Cleaned up properly, I imagine he'd be quite handsome. So far, I've been able to keep him completely ignorant of my presence. He wonders every so often why the hot tub in an abandoned apartment complex still works, and why it never seems to need cleaning. Fortunately, it doesn't take much effort for me to divert the lad's thoughts elsewhere. You see... He has dreams of becoming an actor. A movie star, actually. This boy, however, seems to possess some actual intelligence, and for all I know, maybe even some legitimate talent. Jason is on his way over with the pool boy, still shirtless, body glistening with sweat, bound and in the trunk of his Jaguar. He may be planning another long scene where I'm condemned only to watch, or perchance this may be one of the times when he's feeling generous and my little Aztec will satisfy annoying hunger. Either way, alive or dead, I know Jason will eventually dispose of the body beneath my waters. But Jason doesn't know about the building's new tenant. He doesn't know I've made contact with him. It's not much of a contact, not a strong connection like I've fostered with Jason. But it's enough. Jason's success has caused him to forget a fundamental fact that every newcomer to Hollywood knows. When he climbs up onto my deck with the pool boy in his arms, I'll just have to remind him. It's a truism in Hollywood. No matter how big you are in this town, there's always someone waiting just behind you, someone wanting to get ahead, someone desperate to take your place. All it takes is the slightest push.
3: Welcome back. I hope that you were disturbed and, more importantly, entertained. I promise. No more tricks. Your narrator for this story was Graham Dunlop. Graham Dunlop is a software solution architect and a voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He has been the host of both the fantasy podcast Podcastle and the YA podcast Cast of Wonders. You can find him on Google+, and he occasionally tweets as @kabitzer on Twitter. I also want to state for the record that Graham's work is some of my favorite. I've spent many hours listening to him host both Cast of Wonders and PodCastle on the Escape Artist Network. I'm very proud to be able to introduce him tonight. As always, links to our authors and narrators' websites are in the show notes. Tales to Terrify is produced by our host and editor Stephen Kilpatrick, editor Scott Silk, and associate editors Drew, Sebastini, and myself, Seth Williams. We operate under a creative commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivative 4.0 international license. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Website design is by Josh Leitze, and our theme music is by Diane Severson. Children of the Night, please consider making a donation on the District of Wonders Patreon page. We love being able to pay our authors, and more importantly, we love being here to entertain you. That'll be our show for the evening. Join us next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.